When I was a boy, I really wanted a watch. As I recall it, none of my contemporaries had one. In fact, at the time, it was really quite common for adults to stop strangers in the street and say, excuse me, do you have the time? And the answer to be, no, sorry, I don't. Because many people didn't wear watches. But I wanted one, and I was fixated on getting my first watch. And uh, not just any watch, you know, (laughs) I wanted something really beautiful, a really quality timepiece. And so I set about saving up my pocket money to add to the money that I'd accumulated over the years of putting birthday postal orders into my post office savings account. And I was so focused on the watch that I went without some of the things that my brothers were enjoying, spending their money on, like Tizer, Sherbet Fountains, uh, quarter penny chews in old money, you know, we fought for an old penny and all that sort of thing. Uh, Because I was saving up for this. And as I approached what I recall was my 13th birthday, January 1973, I asked my parents if I could have money towards this watch for both my Christmas forget presents, just my whole Christmas, my whole birthday, and that money, when I got it, then went into the account. And then the day arrived when, with great excitement, I got to go into Watford with my dad to find and purchase my watch. And as we looked through the range on display, I suddenly saw it. The one I had to have. Love at first sight. And this isn't a picture of my actual watch, but this is an almost identical model from, I think, a year later. A Swiss-made 21-jewel brush stainless steel rotary on a steel bracelet strap with the date and mother-of-pearl inset bars for numbers. It was 20 pounds, which is equivalent to well over 250 pounds today, a little bit more than I had saved. But, Dad, this is the one. I have to have this one. I'll give you all my pocket money for the coming months. I'll sell anything I can to my brothers and, uh, you know, to, to pay it back. And, in fact, I'll start washing cars. I just need to borrow the shortfall. So my dad, witnessing my diligence with money and my bond with this watch lent me the difference, and I came home with it. And so I continued over the following months to joyfully forego other things that my brothers enjoyed spending their money on so that I could pay every penny back in the agreed time frame. And in fact, that year, I started my own business. So I was 13, I bought my own bucket, shampoo, sponges, and I went knocking door to door and earned the money to pay it back. I loved that watch and I wore it for decades. It's amazing what we will give up to pursue something we really want. I'll tell you why I told that story in a minute. Today I'm starting a seven-part series, which I'm sharing with some of the other preaching team, on the kingdom of God. Over the next couple of months, we'll be exploring what the kingdom of God is and how it shapes our lives. Now, many of you will be familiar with that phrase, Uh, You'll have heard it said many times in the life of this church over the years. Uh, But you may have wondered, what was Jesus actually talking about when he talked about the kingdom of God? What did it mean when he encouraged us to pray, your kingdom come? For others of you, uh, today may be the first time you've ever actually heard that expression. You may be wondering why we would dedicate so many talks to this one subject. And so that's really what I want to address today. What is the kingdom of God and why would we want to focus on it? 
John Wimber, who pioneered the vineyard movement, the movement of churches that we belong to, was impacted many years ago by the writings of a theologian by the name of George Eldon Ladd and also others who were writing about the kingdom. And as a movement, really, we're built upon an understanding of the kingdom of God, which is not just a theological concept, but is something that significantly affects the way we understand life, really everything that we do. Our vision statement, which we wrote 25 years ago, contains that phrase within it. We aim to make, train, and equip disciples to, to what? Be effective in the extending of God's kingdom. When nearly six years ago, Debbie and I took on the national role of leading the vineyard churches in the UK and Ireland, we came up with just a short phrase to capture our vision for the movement. This is what it was. Extending God's kingdom together, everywhere, in every way. The word kingdom appears 155 times in the New Testament. Most times, occurrences spoken by Jesus, who talked just continually about the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew sometimes uses the phrase kingdom of God, sometimes kingdom of heaven. So the two are one and the same thing. Jesus said the reason he was sent was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And when he sent his disciples out, he commissioned them to share that very message. He talked about the nature of the kingdom of God, how to enter it. He taught his disciples to pray that his kingdom would come in greater measure. And to make sure they really got the importance of this message, after the resurrection, the opening verses of the book of Acts, verse 3 says this, after he suffered, after his crucifixion, he presented himself to them with many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message. The kingdom of God breaking in with his presence. And Jesus often taught using parables, word pictures, stories, which people could relate to, familiar images, to reveal truths about the kingdom. So, you know, he, many of his parables compared it to things like a mustard seed or a farmer sowing seed or a landowner hiring men to work in the vineyard or yeast working through a batch of dough. And so let's just look at two of these very short parables that are captured in just three verses Together, This is Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew, it could have been the kingdom of God elsewhere in his gospel. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Both these parables describe the discovery of something precious, so precious that the finder was willing to give up everything else to attain it, a bit like my first watch. It feels foolish to be giving up things that others are enjoying, but it feels like a major sacrifice. But notice the response to this first man. It says, in his joy... The treasure he found was of such value that he would not only willingly but happily would joyfully sell everything he had for it. And that's how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. What could be so captivating that someone would sell everything to pursue it above all else? Well, let's first of all touch on what the kingdom of God is. 
So I don't know what the word kingdom conjures up for you. Perhaps you're reminded of the United Kingdom uh, and uh, you know, a handful of countries within a geographical boundary. Well, the kingdom of God is quite different to that. It's not bounded on geography. A more accurate way of understanding the kingdom is the arena in which a king or queen reigns. Unlike a geographical kingdom, God's kingdom isn't contained within borders. God's kingdom's present wherever God's will is done. As Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is essentially God's heavenly rule being expressed on earth. It's where his nature is expressed. It's where things are the way God designed them to be. Rich Nathan, my friend from Columbus Vineyard, put it this way. Very simply, the kingdom of God is what things would be like if Jesus ran everything and if his will was done everywhere. The kingdom of God is what things would be like if Jesus was in charge. In charge. When Jesus began his ministry, he came announcing, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, if someone made that statement out in Nottingham today, people would look extremely blankly at them. Uh, there may be some Christians who would recognize the phrase and understand a little bit about what uh, they were saying. But Jesus was speaking in the first century, first century Israel, and it was explosive news to say, the time has come. The kingdom of God has arrived. Because the kingdom of God would have been a very familiar concept to many of those listening to Jesus. The idea of God's rule and reign is deeply embedded throughout the whole of Scripture where God promises people that he would be their king and would one day express his rule fully on earth through the Messiah, his anointed one. So the context into which Jesus was ministering was one of a nation desperately waiting for the coming of the kingdom. To help us understand this, we're going to zoom right out and see how this theme of the kingdom is constantly there through the story of the Bible. The Bible starts with the story of creation, with God as the Lord over all that he has created. He is the king of the universe. We read that God makes humans as the pinnacle of this creation. He makes us in his image and grants us authority to rule and reign in his world. We are like the princes and princesses of the kingdom. But something goes wrong. The devil tempts humanity to rebel against God. And sadly, we do. Our authority is handed over to Satan. Our true human identity as sons and daughters of the king becomes distorted and the perfect goodness of God's creation is ruptured. As a result of sin, Satan is at large with this stolen authority and influence over the world. But as we read through the Bible, it starts to become clear that God has a plan. The book of Revelation shows us that he will one day destroy the devil and his work and restore humanity to their proper place in God's creation to carry the authority and dignity he created us for once again in a recreated and restored kingdom. We will join the angels in declaring the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. 
God's people will live under God's reign for eternity. So that's the big story. But how do we get from here to here to here? The answer is basically Jesus. But there are lots of twists and turns along the way. Within the subplots, among the heroes and the villains, this theme of the kingdom crops up again and again throughout the Bible. It's a little bit like when you buy a new car. You suddenly notice that same make and model everywhere you go. It's not as if they've all of a sudden just appeared. It's just now you see them. You're more aware of it. And that's what the kingdom of God is like in the Bible. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. It's there at every turn of the page. It's in the story of the people of Israel, how God chose a nation to be his people so that he could start to build his kingdom through them. He made covenants with them, agreements between a king and the nation that he's ruling over. We see the kingdom in the story of Moses in Egypt and how God was able to demonstrate his sovereign authority over the might of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the ancient world by sending these plagues and ultimately showing that his power was greater than the Egyptian gods. We see the theme of the kingdom play out as we follow the kings of Israel through the reigns of King David and especially his son, King Solomon. We catch a glimpse of how truly good God's kingdom could be as the people of Israel enjoyed peace and abundance, this promised land flowing with milk and honey. But in all of these examples, we also see that ultimately the only one truly qualified to be king is God. As the flaws, frailties and self-centeredness of these human kings comes to light and the nation of Israel fractures and crumbles, eventually to be conquered and taken captive by surrounding peoples. But it's not over. We later see the kingdom revealed in the prophetic books in the Bible, which foretell that God will send a conquering king, the Messiah, the Christ, to restore the kingdom and put things right. And that's exactly what he does. We see the kingdom bursting into life in the person of this Messiah, Jesus, bringing the reign of God into action. We see him battling his ancient adversary, Satan, in the wilderness and defeating his authority by driving out demons and healing the sickness he saw all around him. We notice that through a lot of the parables that Jesus told, we can start to learn what this kingdom actually looks like. And we see Jesus traveling to Jerusalem as the king the prophecies had foretold, only to wear a crown of thorns instead of gold and take up a cross as his throne. As the New Testament story continues into the book of Acts and beyond, the pictures and promises of the kingdom from the very start seem to be once more within reach because of Jesus. We're told that we have been born again through Jesus' resurrection into the kingdom of God. We learn that we are now co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the King. And we notice God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are once again carrying authority, identity, power and purpose as ambassadors of God's ever-extending kingdom. And so, as we witness God's kingdom at work on the earth, we're waiting for the King, Jesus, to return. As the end-time prophecies tell us He will, to establish his reign forever. 
we are so excited to be spending time looking at the kingdom of God over the next few weeks. And we hope and we pray that these talks will help us better understand what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of God and why the kingdom is something so wonderful that like treasure buried in a field, it is worth forsaking all else for. the first time I've seen it. That's awesome. Thank you, Amy and the team who put that together. So throughout the Bible, we see this idea of God's rule and his reign. But what does that look like? Well, the, the rule of Solomon, who you heard about on the film there, gives us a picture, and there are glimpses through the scriptures, a picture of uh, what the kingdom of God is like. And it's described this way in 1 Kings chapter 4. This is verse 20. This is under Solomon's reign. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate and drank and they were happy. It was just a time of abundance and provision. Solomon's daily provisions were five tons of the finest flour and 10 tons of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle. He didn't eat all this. He's got a lot of guests around the table, okay? 20 of pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river Euphrates from Tifsar to Gaza and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and fig tree. Peace on all sides. The Jewish word for peace there is shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean the absence of war. It's so much richer than that. It speaks of well-being on every level. Each family had its own piece of land where they could sit under their grapevine. I didn't realize you could sit under a grapevine until I was in the Middle East many years ago, staying at a house, and they had a wooden structure on the side of the house with this vine growing over it, just like this picture. In the intensity of the sun, it was a place of dappled shade. They could sit under their vine or under their fig tree, enjoying good relationships with their neighbors, lots of children chomping on ripe figs uh, and lifting a glass of wine, toasting Solomon, toasting the Lord, praising God. We see through scriptures there are all sorts of prophetic images throughout the Bible describing aspects of the kingdom of God. So just to summarize a few, there'll be forgiveness of sins, the healing of the sick, the releasing of people from every form of captivity, uh, the blind will see, the lame will walk, prisoners will be set free, Those, uh, there'll be liberty from bondage, from oppression, there'll be shalom on a whole new level and then there will be one day the feast of all feasts eclipsing Solomon's table. God will be the hosts and the guests will be from every tribe and language and people and nation. Everything which is broken will be restored. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And everything evil will be judged. Injustice will be dealt with. And a new heaven and a new earth will be established as God rules and reigns supreme. One scholar summarizes it like this. The kingdom of God expresses the hope for a world in which the powers of sin, death, and darkness are replaced by peace, justice, and worship of the one true God. In essence, it is the hope that the rule of God will be restored over all creation. 
So when Jesus stood up and said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, there was so much contained in that phrase for the first listeners. Last time I spoke, we read from Ephesians chapter 2, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Some translations there have family in place of household. And I focused on the family part of that sentence. But we, the church, are also, with God's people, citizens of his kingdom, just like we're citizens, most of us, of the United Kingdom. And we come under the rule of that kingdom. We come under the expression of it, the experience of being a part of it. And once we grasp this, it really does change everything. So what's the kingdom? Well, it's where God's rule and reign is in effect, where we experience God's nature. His longing that, you know, all those wonderful things would be our experience right now. But the truth is that we don't see all those things fully expressed yet, do we? And we'll explore why that is next week. But God's rule and reign is absolutely beautiful. So why wouldn't we pursue it with everything we have? Why wouldn't we give up everything for it? This subject's a really important biblical framework for seeing everything we do. So in this short talk today, I've only been able to briefly touch on the subject, which we'll be looking at in more detail over these coming weeks. We'll be exploring more about what the kingdom looks like, about the coming of the kingdom, why we sometimes don't experience those expressions of the kingdom as we might hope. We'll be thinking about how we seek it, how it impacts our lives, and how we can invite others into it. So what I hope I've done today is begin to open up what is really an amazing and important subject the kingdom of God. And I would encourage you to engage with the whole series, either live here or online. Uh, the whole, um, if you miss one, you can always catch up online during the week. These services stay on YouTube, so you can just go and watch any part of the service. But also the videos of the talks are on our website. Also, you can hear them via podcast. We'll be providing some resources to small groups uh, to go a bit deeper And small group leaders, you'll be aware that this week resources will be sent out. They're coming out tomorrow. There'll be a video, discussion questions. And so I'd really encourage those of you who are in a small group to be there this week when most of the groups will begin to look at this and and for the coming weeks. And if you're not yet in a small group, this is a great time to join one. I'd encourage you to go uh, to either email smallgroups at trentvineyard.org or you can just head to the Connect link. So I look forward to the rest of the series, uh, which I'll be sharing with a few of our preaching team.